Once again, welcome to Harvest. We're glad you're here worshiping with us today. Um, we're going to go ahead and dive into God's Word, man. We love to worship Him in song, but we also love to worship Him through the preaching and the teaching of His Word. So grab a Bible, and we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. You can grab one of those and follow along there as well. So we've been in this new series uh, in the book of Acts called The Power of the Spirit. This is actually the last message in this part of Acts, The Power of the Spirit, and, uh, and then we're going to continue on through the rest of the book. But today we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit unifies, how the Holy Spirit unifies or brings unity. Um, before I entered into you know, full-time vocational ministry, um, I was actually a history teacher for a number of years. And um, early American history was always kind of my favorite thing, like that was kind of my jam um, in terms of history stuff. And so um, one of the men that I always found most remarkable in early American history was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this was a guy who, through his wisdom and integrity and perseverance, led our country through one of its most challenging and divisive seasons for sure. Um, and in the midst of all of that, he, he was able to accomplish monumental change while still being committed to unifying the country and bringing everyone back together. Um, at one point in the middle of the Civil War, you know, this is this long, arduous, trying Civil War, it was reported to Abraham Lincoln that one of his own cabinet members, like one of his guys on his team, Edward Stanton, Edwin Stanton, had called him a fool. Like they, somebody, they've been talking about some policy or whatever, and they called President Lincoln a fool. And so this is relayed to the president. And here was President Lincoln's response. He just kind of calmly paused and said, well, I must check into that, for I have found that he's usually correct in his judgments. I love that, right? Like that, that humble response. Like this is the president of the United States. He could have he could have fired him. He could have fired back some criticism. He could have probably even done worse. You know, you got guys on the roll that can do that stuff. Like, but he didn't. He, he, he paused and he thought and he chose to seek unity through humility rather than repeat the error of his opponent and be the same hypocritical uh, spirit that his fellow um, had had towards him. Jesus calls his disciples to do the very same thing for the unity of the church. Christ is committed to the unity of his family, of his body. He prayed for it, he taught on it, he died for it. It's a big deal. And what we're going to see in the text today is that unity comes when I choose humility over hypocrisy. This is the key to our text today. That unity in the body of Christ, unity in the church comes when I choose humility over hypocrisy. So with that in mind, we're going to be in chapter 4 of Acts, starting in verse 32. We'll pick it up. Here we go. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Here's point number one today. Unity in the church requires unity in the faith. 
Unity in the church requires unity in the faith. So chapter 4 here is kind of a, a throwback to chapter 2. Remember we heard some of this kind of similar language back in chapter 2. that They were all together in one accord and, and sharing their belongings and making sure everyone was taken care of. So this is just kind of another overview section of here's what life was like in the early church. Luke is kind of giving us an insight here. And he says, he says, now the full number. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we said that after uh, Peter and John healed the guy and started preaching in the temple, that the number of disciples went from 3,000 to 5,000. So the full number would be 5,000 people are now going to be unified in an agreement. Now, let's just be real for a second. I've been on some teams before. I've been on some committees before. Anybody else done this? Of like five people or ten people and trying to get them to agree on anything 100% was like, shoot me in the head, right? Like 5,000 people are coming together in unity here. This is obviously a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This is the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Those two things are tied together. It was precisely their belief, their common faith in Jesus that bound their hearts and their lives together, right? It's because they all believed in him that they were now bring, being brought together as one. It wasn't their likes or their interests. It wasn't their hobbies or their causes. It wasn't their skin color or their shared experiences or the amount of wealth they had or didn't have or what neighborhood they lived in. That is not what was bringing unity in the early church. It was that they all had faith in Jesus. Sometimes I think we get confused in our culture today and think that unity and uniformity are the same thing. They are not. Unity does not equal uniformity. We don't have to like the same movies or the same music or eat at the same restaurants or cheer for the same sports teams, although... If you're not, you probably don't need to come back next week, okay? I'm just saying that right now. But we don't have to do all of that in order to be unified, to be one. What we need is common faith in Jesus Christ. That's where true Christian unity comes from. But this only will happen when we get our eyes off of ourselves off of my life and my agenda and my stuff, and we all get our eyes up on Christ. See, here's the way it works. Alignment with Jesus aligns us with one another. Alignment with Jesus aligns us with one another. Just like if I brought three or five or ten pianos in here and I tuned them all to the same tuning fork, they're all going to be in tune with one another if we all align ourselves with Jesus, guess what? We'll all be in alignment with one another in the Christian faith. That's where true unity comes from. So because of this unity, it goes on and says they had everything in common. All right? They, again, this is the idea of they were living with open hands. That they were open with their resources in order to bless and help others. I, I said a couple weeks ago, this is not socialism. Right? This isn't forcing everyone to not own anything. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, you see, the language of this very text shows us that. It says that everything that belonged to him, the word belong means they still own something. Right? There's still private property here. But everything that belonged to him, he did not consider it his 
own, showing that it was open. Lord, if you need this, it's yours. If someone else is in need, I'm willing to share, I'm willing to give, I'm willing to part with what I have in order for the good of the community, for the good of the gospel. That's what it means here when it says everything in common. So in other words, they were willing to submit, and this is, whew, man, this right here is so countercultural to everything that we live in, the water we swim, the air we breathe. But here's the reality. They were willing to submit their material lives to their spiritual lives. They were willing to submit their material lives, what they had, what they owned, what they wanted, their dreams, their aspirations, their careers, their promotions, all of it, to pursuing unity in the family of God. That's how important it was. True oneness of heart always shows up in our hands. We can't just talk about it. We can't just preach about it and sing songs about it. If we're truly following Jesus and our hearts are being changed and we're bringing, being brought together as one, it will show up in how we live. A great illustration of this is marriage. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of this, in the Bible, that the idea for marriage is centered around this idea of oneness, of two becoming one, that, that you leave your father and your mother and you become one flesh. That's, that's kind of the basis of the whole thing. Um, but I don't, maybe you've seen this kind of humorous uh, T-shirt or coffee mug before. Um, what yours is mine and what's mine is mine. Anybody ever seen that one, right? A lot of people approach marriage this way, but that's not marriage. That's just roommates, right? Remember back in college, we used to write your name on stuff in the fridge so nobody else would eat it? You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is mine. Don't touch it. Yeah, that means you. Right? That, that was the note on the thing, right? That's not marriage. That's not oneness. Oneness is what's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. Willing to, I love you enough to sacrifice, to serve, to give, to, to make sure that you have what you need. That's the same type of oneness and unity that Christ wants in his church. That in the body of believers that we're willing to say, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine and we're in this together. That's unity. And it says that this was all centered in and based around the test that the apostles continued to give testimony to the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, these guys will just not stop talking about Jesus, right? Like, like everywhere they go, everything they do, that's all you hear over and over. They're just preaching, the, preaching Jesus. They're just talking about the resurrection. They're just continuing to hammer this because they understood that the gospel is the only true key to life. Like if you want to really have a life, a full fullness in, in, in this world, you've got to have it in Jesus. We, friends, we, no matter what they try to tell you in the commercials, no matter what they try to tell you in the books you're reading or the music you're listening to, we are all broken, sinful people. We're born that way by nature, and we choose that way through our own heart and our own actions. And that sin separates us from God. And we are fully deserving of his wrath and punishment and being sent to eternity separated from him in hell. That's what we deserve. But God loves us too much to let that be the end of the story. 
And so the gospel simply is this, that God looked down at our brokenness. He said, I'm going to help. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect and sinless life. To go to the cross and die a sinner's death. Not for his sin. He didn't have any. He took our place. He was my substitute. and He died for my sin. He took the wrath that I deserved from God. He took it upon himself. And then he died and he was buried. And three days later, he rose back to life. To show that he was God. To show that he offers forgiveness. That he offers, what we're going to see here in the text, that he offers grace to all those who will come and believe. Who will put their faith in him. This is what the apostles were preaching because they understood that gospel unity is all based on the fact that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We're all sinners, we're all broken. There's none of us better or worse than anybody else. We all equally need Jesus. That's why we can be unified. It says here that great grace was upon them all. We need that. We need God's great grace upon all of us equally. The gospel brings humility over my sinfulness. When I finally see God for who he is and my heart for what it is, I am humbled at the foot of the cross knowing that he would die for me. And when we all get to that place, kneeling before the Savior King in humility, unity just comes. Gospel humility is our source for gospel unity. We can't just talk about unity and just make a plan to all, you know, have this class or that class or this activity and it all bring us together. And that's not real unity. Unity only comes through gospel humility when we all get on our knees and realize, man, I need Jesus just as much as you do. Does anyone else cringe a little bit when they hear that statement? Because maybe you struggle a little bit with humility, like this guy up here. Anybody else? Don't leave me hanging. Come on. All right. I know I do. My restaurant choice is always the best, right? Like my strategy to win the game is always the one that's gonna make it happen, right? Um, my, uh, my way to fix the problem is always better than what we had before. This is my heart. This is my prideful heart. What does that do to relationships when you live like that? What's that do to your friendships and your family and your your coworkers and your neighbors, it just rips it all apart, right? It just, it just tears at the fabric. It just destroys and tears them down. There is no unity when you live like that, when you have a heart like that. Do you know who the biggest culprit of this type of prideful heart is in the church ecosystem, the church world today? I'm really sad to say this. It's church plants. Oftentimes it's church plants because we come up with these ideas that we can do everything better. Here are some slogans that I've literally seen or heard from church plants. Not your grandma's church. Implying obviously that grandma's church wasn't good enough. Come experience how church is supposed to be. Because everybody else is doing it wrong. Church doesn't have to be boring. 
because Blank City needs a gospel preaching church because obviously there's nobody else here who can actually do that well. Do you hear the arrogance and the pride in those statements? Man, harvest, that is not who we want to be. We love the Lord. We are pursuing him. We are running after his glory. And we're doing the best we can with that, but we're not the only ones. There are plenty of great gospel preaching churches in this city who are doing the same thing, maybe in a different way, maybe a different style than we do it, maybe a different way of setting it up, but man, the Lord can still be glorified there too. But we want to be about is not self-centered, self-serving comparison and criticism that tears other people down and tears other churches down. God is not glorified in that. We need to come with unity that will only grow as we grow in gospel humility. I'm not talking about just unity in this building. I'm talking about unity in the body of Christ across St. Louis, across this nation, across the world. That unity only comes as we come with humility and say, man, we are just merely redeemed servants of the Savior King. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. Like, we're just, we're just all trying to pursue him together. That's where we want to be. Gospel humility is our source for gospel unity. It's all got to start there. We see that here in the early church. Look at the story as it goes on in verse 34. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to any, it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's point number two. The church grows in unity when I grow in humility. The church grows in unity when I personally, me, grow in humility. So they lift up here as kind of an example, this guy named Joseph, but the apostles changed his name to Barnabas. Now, can I just say for a second, anytime the apostles change your name, you know you're killing it, right? Like, like when the apostles are like, that's not good enough name, we're going to give you a new name, like you know you're knocking it out of the park at that point, right? So, so they come in and they're like, hey, we're going to call you Barnabas, son of encouragement, and all through the book of Acts, we're going to see this play out over and over again. He's going to be encouraging others in the gospel and leading people to Christ, and this fits him so well. And he here is the example of humility and unity. So we're going to look at this, and I'm just going to pull out for us five acts of humility that build unity. Five acts of humility where we can humble ourselves in these ways to help build unity in the body of Christ. Number one is this, believe the gospel. We've already seen that, right, in the first part, that they believed and that they were of one heart and soul. It all starts with that. We all need Jesus So we're all on the same team. And as soon as you start believing the gospel, not just for salvation, but for your whole life, it will bring you into unity with other believers around you. Number two, love God's people. In verse 34, it says, there was not a needy person among them because they were loving each other. I've given you this definition for love probably hundreds of times now. Give it to you again. Love is simply this. You be for me. That's it. It's putting others before myself. It's, it's take, thinking about their needs before my needs. As, 
as great, um, infamous um, 90s Christian rap band DC Talk used to say, love is a verb. You have to do something with it. You have to live it out. You have to actually do something to put others' sacrifice and put them before yourself. That's what they're doing here. They're loving God's people. That is the ultimate act of humility. Believe the gospel, love God's people. Number three, align my priorities. Align my priorities. It says that they sold their land and their houses in order to care for others. They were willing to align their earthly priorities to their new faith in Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice what they had for the good of others, for the good of the church, for the good of the gospel. We have to be willing to sacrifice if we're going to be unified. I'm not talking about just money here. I'm talking about sacrifice, period. If we do move into a new season of ministry here in a new place, with, like, there's going to be a lot of change with that, and we're going to be, need to be ready to maybe sacrifice some of our preferences sometimes. Maybe somebody's going to sit in your seat. Maybe you're not going to like that music, that, you know, that song in, in the set. Maybe you're not going to like the way we do kids over here or this class or, like, people, guys, we can get so caught up in us that we lose unity because we're not humble enough to set our preferences aside sometimes and just be like, man, if we're going after Jesus, I'm in. If, 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 we're, going after, if we're going after the gospel, then I'm in. Right? Whatever that looks like. So we need to align our priorities. Number four, trust godly leaders. As they went and they sold the fields and they sold their property, it says they came and they laid the money at the apostles' feet. That's actually a Jewish expression of the time that basically meant that they were showing obedience and submission to authority in their life. God has put certain levels of authority and leadership over all of us, okay? You have it at work, you might have it at home. If you're a kid still, you might have it in um, the, you know, in your, in the community with, you know, police and things like that. You have it in the church with godly leaders. God has set up different levels of authority. And for us as believers, if you're a follower of Jesus, our call is to come and to trust and support and submit to godly leaders in our lives. Hebrews 13, 17 says it this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's an account to God himself for how they led and shepherded you. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would not be of any advantage to you. All right, in other words, don't make it hard on them because that doesn't help anybody. We are called to trust. And listen, trusting and, and, and following and submitting to leadership is simply this, coming and saying, I'm laying down my yes. Not because of you, not because you have some awesome powers, but because I trust the Holy Spirit's working in you and I see God moving in some ways here that you are somebody that I can say, I'm, yes, I'm in. Whatever that looks like, whatever you need, whatever, whatever that's gonna lead to, I'm in. I'm, my, my yes is on the table. Lord, where will you, Lord, where, where, where will you lead us? Trusting godly leaders is the fourth thing. The fifth thing is move on mission. Move on mission. We see this here again with Barnabas' example. He did everything we just talked about, right? 
He was all in. He believed. He loved the people. He, he submitted his stuff. He submitted to the leadership. He was all in for the good of the church, for the good of the gospel, for the good of the mission. His practice of faith matched his profession of faith. Ooh. If only we could just do that consistently. How much would we change the whole world with the gospel? if our practice of faith always matched our profession of faith. He was a servant to the king's mission. That's what it means to be on mission with Jesus is that I'm a servant and I'm just doing whatever he says to do. You know, it's, it's, it's finally starting to feel like fall a little bit in STL. Anybody else notice this, right? Like, hey, we, can, we can applaud for that. That's okay, I'm good with that. Um, you know, you got football now, you got hoodies going, you got the colors changing, you know, cards are in the postseason. Somebody needs to tell them that, but like it's, it's happening, right? Um, pumpkin spice, everything, you know, like this is fall, right? We love fall. And, and I, I grew up in a small town. I, I pastored in a small town for a number of years. Do you know what one of the primo activities are? Fall, primo fall activity in a small town. Bonfire. You know what I'm talking about? Like and I'm not talking about like little backyard, fire pit, suburban. No, I'm talking like bonfire, like go to the field, pile up the wood, kerosene on top, and just light the whole thing to the ceiling, right? Like this is, like you know it's a good bonfire when you, it's so hot you can't get close enough to roast your marshmallow because your face will melt off, right? Like you're like, like this kind of thing, right? Like that's, it was a bonfire. Now, if you're going to have a good bonfire, what is the key? What, is, what does it take to build and maintain a strong, robust, lasting fire. Fuel. You need the wood, you need the accelerant, you need the fuel if the fire is going to keep going. Are you tracking with me? Do you know what the fuel is to build and maintain a strong, robust, lasting gospel ministry or gospel church? Humility. Humility is the fuel for ministry. It takes us coming and humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to the Lord in whatever way he wants to use us because humility builds unity with God and with others for the good of the kingdom and for the glory of his name. You know, again, I said this earlier, last week we shared with you a possible opportunity to adopt this kind of struggling church into our church family and, and, and to be able to use their existing building. And I don't know if that's going to work out or not. I'm just being straight up with you today. Like, I have no idea. This could go, it could not. But if it does, the opportunity brings lots of excitement. I've had some conversations with you guys. You're excited. I'm excited. Like, it brings some excitement. It brings, it's, it could be awesome. But it's also going to bring a lot of change new location, new people, maybe new ministries. I don't know. Like they, it, it's going to involve some change. And I think we all know that oftentimes when change comes, our human flesh side <laughs> doesn't always do so well. Right? Like things come out, and, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And, and if we're not walking with the Spirit, it can get ugly. And, and Satan, he loves to attack in the midst of change because he already knows that we're emotionally vulnerable during that time. Right? And so... This is, this is a big deal, guys. We, 
as God leads us into this next season of ministry, into this next season of possible opportunity, we have to double down on the necessary fuel for ministry. We have to be checking our hearts and checking our minds. Am I coming with humility to what God has for me and for this church and for his name? This is what's gonna hold it all together. We have to be committed to humility and sacrifice in order to unite in Christ as he propels the mission forward. And the real trick to this is we all have to own it. It's not enough just for the pastor or the elders or the small group leaders. Every single person who calls Harvest home has to be on this. We have to be humbling ourselves and waiting on the Lord and saying, yes, whatever you want, God. And being willing to follow him on mission. Let me say it this way. Harvest unity depends on my humility. Not your neighbors, not your small group leaders, not your wife or your husbands. It depends on you. It depends on you bringing a humble heart to the table. So that's what we're going to go after. Now, for the third point, we're actually going to step into chapter 5 for a couple verses here. So go to chapter 5 with me. Pick it up in verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So I know we're stepping into another chapter here, but notice the first word in chapter 5, verse 1. What's the first word in your Bible? But. All right, so let's go back to grammar for a second. But is a connecting word that means contrast. So this story of Ananias and Sapphira is contrasted against the story we just heard about Barnabas. Right? All the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, they're great, they're super helpful, but they were added after the fact. They're not part of the original Bible text, okay? So, so that's just a way that we can, so we don't, they don't always mean we have to stop. This is all one unit of thought. This is all one story that we're looking at here. And so it says here, Ananias and Sapphira, we can link them back to verse 32 in the last chapter, meaning that they were part of the church. These are people who are in the church, possibly even believers, okay? But they were living in hypocrisy. A lot of times we think that their lying is the issue here. Lying is not really the issue. The heart, the real issue is an issue of integrity. 
over honesty. That they weren't who they said they were. They wanted the praise of man without the sacrifice that it took to get there. They, they, wanted to, they didn't really want to help the poor. They just wanted to boost their egos and make themselves look good in front of others. They were hypocrites. And so from their example, we're going to learn five acts of hypocrisy that destroy unity. Five acts of hypocrisy that destroy unity. Obviously, these are things that we want to avoid. The first one, number one, is secret lives. It says here that when they sold the land, that he did it with his wife's knowledge. Right? So they're saying one thing in one group of people. They're saying something different in a different group of people. They're compartmentalizing their lives. Listen, if you're one person at work and somebody different at home and somebody different at church and somebody different at the bar or on the soccer field, that is not what it means to follow Christ. That's a hypocrite. When we compartmentalize our lives and we're different people in different places in different times, that is a secret life that is not pleasing to the Lord. So that's the first act of hypocrisy we see here. The second one is self-serving. It says that they kept back part of the proceeds for themselves, right? And they only brought part of it in. Now, notice here Peter's response. Peter's response is so key. He's like, why? Why did you do this? Before you sold the land, wasn't it your own? Even after you sold it, the money was yours to do whatever you wanted to with. Like, why are you coming in and acting like you're giving all of it when you're not really giving all of it? See, again, the issue here is it's not that it's wrong to have things. It's not even that it's wrong to keep some, some back for yourself. There's not a problem with that. The problem was that they were lying about it, that they were doing it for the wrong motives. See, they had love completely backwards. In their minds, it was me before you, not you before me. And so I'm going to keep back the most important part for myself, and I'll give you what's left. They were self-serving in the way they did it. That's hypocrisy. Number three, sinful deception. Peter says, why did you choose to lie to the Holy Spirit? He said, you haven't just lied to men, but you have lied to God. They're lying here to appear more holy than they are. That's super ironic, right? Like the very thing they're doing to appear holy is actually making them less holy. Hypocrisy is always deception. And what Peter's point is here is that deception, lying, is first and foremost against God. It's not just against another person or a group or an entity. It's against the Lord. We see this with King David. When King David had his affair with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51 on the tail end of that, and he said this. He says, he's talking to God. He says, against you and you only, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, if you know David's story, he sinned against a whole bunch of people, right? Like, you got Bathsheba and Uriah, and like, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on there. But here, what his point is that first and foremost, his sin was not against man, but his sin was against God. The same is true for all of us. Hypocrisy and disunity are more than just relational strife between you and another person. Sometimes we tend to downplay disunity. We tend, to, we tend not to worry too much about it because, well, we think, well, it's just with so-and-so and they're not really that important, so I don't really, it doesn't really matter. But what Peter's saying is, no, no, it's not just you and them. 
it's first and foremost against God. And God takes this sin very seriously. And so should we. Number four, scheming, scheming conspiracy. Peter calls her in, uh, Sapphira, and she says, hey, did you sell it for so much? And she's like, yeah, for so much. Because it says that they had agreed together. They had come together. They had gotten their story straight. You ever notice you, you, you only have to get your story straight when you're lying. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, when you're both telling the truth, like, you don't have to worry about it. You just say what it is. But when, you, when you're trying to cover it up, when you're trying to do the thing, you've got to get your story straight. Peter gives Sapphira here a chance to come clean, a chance to repent. But she doesn't. Because when you're living a hypocritical life, it's cover at all costs. Whatever it takes to cover up the truth and to make yourself look good and to keep the lie going and to keep it up, that's what you're going to do. And that's what they're doing here. They're scheming together to conspire and to keep up the appearance. And then number five, self-worship. The real key to this is Peter says, you're not, why have you decided in your heart to deceive the Holy Spirit? In your heart. Deception and hypocrisy are heart issues. They're not just behavior issues. They're rooted in the heart. They come from a heart that loves self and loves the praise of men more than we love the glory of God. You know what's crazy to me about this story? What happened to the money? Like, Luke never tells us, like, what happened to the money that they gave? What happened to the money they kept back? They're both dead now, so it's like probably sitting in a hole somewhere. Like, what happened to the money? We don't know. You know why Luke doesn't tell us? Because it's not about the money. None of this has anything to do with the money. It's about their hypocritical, sinful hearts that are focused on self-worship. Every one of us, your heart is either humble, which builds unity, or your heart is hypocritical, which tears down unity. And sometimes it waffles back and forth between the two, if we're being real honest. When you're all about you, you can't be about gospel unity or anyone else. Let me give you a personal story on this. So when I went into full-time ministry, my first position, I was the worship and discipleship pastor at this church, which meant I was supposed to come in and update the music to contemporary music, and I was supposed to start small groups along with their Sunday school classes they already had. So you can guess how popular I was the first six to 12 months uh, in the church. And I oftentimes will joke about that, but honestly, if looking back, all the, all the strife and disunity and problems in that first year, it wasn't just the church. It was me too. I came in with a prideful heart. I thought I knew how to do worship better than they did and they need to get on the program. I thought I had the plan that it was gonna show them that this is what it's supposed to be. And so I came in the very first week, I'm changing song lists, I'm changing instrumentalists, I'm changing style, I'm changing all this stuff. We lost a couple band members the very first week. A few more quit within the first two months. My pastor comes to me after a while and says, hey, you know, I think you try to need to reconcile with these people. And I said, no, 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 this is all on them, man. They're being completely, you know, uh, completely un un um, unreasonable. And they're just like, they, I, I just blamed it completely on them. It had nothing to do with me. 
and I had all these excuses. Well, you know, this, this generation, they just need to, they need to get over their own preferences so that we can attract the younger generation and get everybody in church together, and, and they just, and, which was really just code for, I want to do my music instead of their music. That's what that meant. Because I had this, I had this heart problem. And I have to admit that, unfortunately, many days, I think ministry in those early years were much more about Micah and his kingdom than it was about God and his kingdom. Thankfully, I had a really godly and gracious lead pastor who continued to come alongside me and teach me and grow me and stretch me and say, like, listen, this is not the way we do this. And he showed me that unity in the church and humility in ministry were way more valuable than the latest method or the newest song or the greatest, newest, shiny thing that's supposed to grow your church. That it comes down to this. I had to learn the hard way that God is much more concerned about unity and humility than he is about performance or ability. Some days I feel like I'm still learning that. This is where we have to get. When we see this, these seeds of hypocrisy in our life, we have to be willing to put these things to death or it will rip our unity apart. Ananias and Sapphira, as they lied to the Holy Spirit, it says that they breathed their last. You know that's a bad day in church, right? Like, number one rule on how to grow your church, don't have people die during the offering. Like, that's just not a good day. Like, you're just, it's not going to go well for the next week. And a lot of people struggle with this story because they don't think about God like this. It says here that when this happened, the great fear filled the church. I would say so. You want to bet offerings went up the next week? Like that's, that's how that works, right? God is serious about sin. And he is serious about unity in his church. And we need to understand that. We need to pay attention to this story. We need to learn this lesson because it's very, very important. The holy God must punish sin in his people. Thankfully, he doesn't always do it like this. Do you understand he has the right to? In his perfect holiness, he has the right to strike every one of us dead the moment we sin. But thankfully, because of his grace, he oftentimes uses our sin to call us to repentance to call us back to his kindness and to say, come, let me forgive this. Let's get back in unity together again. We need to do that. Listen, if you have some sin in your life right now that's separating you from God or causing disunity with other brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to deal with that. And you need to deal with it now. Don't wait for God's discipline to show up in your life. It is not fun. Take him up on his offer. Run into his arms of grace. And let him cover and forgive and bring you to a new place of unity with him. If not, harvest unity dies with my hypocrisy. 
that goes for every one of us in here. If I continue to walk in hypocritical heart and life and sin, I will destroy the unity of this church. And so will you. Unity comes when I choose humility over hypocrisy. We have clearly seen how seriously God takes sin in his church and how serious he is about the unity of his church. Jesus died so that we could be saved from sin and live in unity with him and with others. This is a really big deal and it all starts with me and you. Not with a program, not with a new slogan for the church, not with 10 steps to do what, no, it starts just with me and you humbling our hearts before the Lord and letting his Holy Spirit come and unify us at the foot of the cross. Will you walk in humility with Jesus or in hypocrisy with the world? That's the question the scripture lays before you today. Let's go after humility. Humility comes when I get my eyes on Jesus. When I let my heart be changed by the gospel. And when I put my arms around my brothers and sisters and say, we're doing this together. Let's stand, let's pray, let's ask the Lord to do that in our midst and in our hearts today. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son. Lord, we, we have no hope of anything in this life, especially unity, without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for making a way for us to be unified with you again, to overcome the barrier of our sin forgiveness through repentance. Father, we want to be a church that pleases you, that brings you glory, that brings you honor. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious with us in our sin, allowing us to repent and not striking us in the moment. Lord, grow us, grow our lives, grow our families, grow our small groups, grow our church with humble hearts for you that put you first, that live in unity with one another, Lord, that are different, or we are called to be different because of who you are. Lord, do that in us today. May the love and humility of Jesus be the foundation that we build our lives and ministry on. No one else, nothing else, Lord, you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray.